Good morning, everyone. Hymn 607. Hymn 607. 607 stanzas 1, 4, and 5. From depths of woe I cry to thee in trial and tribulation. Bend down thy gracious ear to me, Lord, hear my supplication. If thou rememberest every sin, who then could heaven Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully grant that by your power we may be defended against all adversity. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Verse of the week from the Congregation of Prayer is from Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7, 11. Let's speak this together. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask you? Okay, the first thing here is the description of who you are. You are evil. Boy, it's an uplifting class today. You are evil. And this here, you then being evil. What does it mean that you are being evil? You're evil in the time right now. Yeah, well, okay, you're evil in the time right now. Pardon me? Okay, you're born in sin, yes. Yes, you're doing evil things. So not only is it the fact that you are by nature evil in the flesh, it is also that you are living evilly, that you are continuing to do evil things. So you being evil, you are evil and you do evil. 
people. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, this is important. Or we could also say to your grandchildren. Because everybody knows that when you're a grandparent, you don't want to do anything but give good gifts to your grandchildren. But you uh, look after your children. You care for them. You want to give them good gifts. And this should bring to mind the context of uh, Jesus speaking these words when he asked the question, well, how many of you, if your child asked you for an egg, would give them a, a scorpion? Or if your child asked you for a fish, would you give them a rock? And it's laughable because nobody would do that. Uh, so you, also, you know how to give good gifts to your children, but if you who are evil know how to do that, how much more will your father... Who is in heaven? What should that make you think of? Okay, but use the language. The yes, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. The other thing is this, too. Whose Father is He? Ours. Ours. Your. Who's Individual. speaking? Yes, who's speaking? Who says these words? If you then... Jesus, Jesus is speaking, so whose father is it? It's Jesus' father, but Jesus is the one who looks at you and says, oh, he's also your father, your father in heaven, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, okay? Uh, so it should bring to mind the Lord's prayer and your adoption as sons in Christ Jesus. How much more then will God give you good things, and specifically you being those who ask him? This is a distinction. Good things doesn't mean everything you ask for. It means everything that is good for you. And I think maybe Mercedes isn't what's good for you. <laughs> so that's the thing about prayer. Remember, prayer does not go like this. I want a pony. I want a pony. I want a pony. Give me a pony, God. If prayer goes like that, then you have every right to be angry with God when that morning that you pray for it, you look outside and don't see a pony tied up in your backyard. But if prayer is calling upon God according to his promises uh, and knowing that God will give you all the good things uh, that he has promised to give you, that he will give you everything that is good and right for you, then you know that the Lord will always answer your prayer. Everything ends up pointing to that. And you know that the Lord will always give you that for which you ask or something better, something that is better for you, a different good thing, that is a gooder thing. Uh, okay? So the answer to this question then is what? If you know how to give good gifts and you're evil, how much more will God, who is good, give to you? Much more. more. Anytime you have a question like this, if you this, how much more will? It's always much more. So as much as you give good gifts to your children, God, your heavenly Father, gives even more abundantly, infinitely more even. Okay, let's speak this again. If you, then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father lives in heaven give you good things to those who ask What is the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread. Pray in this petition that God will lead us to realize this.
What is meant by daily bread? Daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, such as food and drink, or clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, and about Okay, so first thing is this. Uh, I want to know what stands out to you the most about what it means to pray, give us this day our daily bread. What here stands out to you? Okay, daily. Think about when the explanation here, what does this mean? God gives daily bread to everybody. Yes, that's the big thing. Even to all evil people. That daily bread is not yours to sit atop your high hill, to hold in your arms and to look down upon everybody else and say, well, I've got my daily bread from God. He takes care of me, but it stinks to be you people down there. No, the Lord takes care of everyone. He is the Father who has created and he will continue to sustain his creation even when his creation rebels against him. He gives even to all evil people. And so we pray that we would receive our daily bread with humility and thanksgiving and that he would lead us to realize that he also gives daily bread to the evil people. Maybe that should allow us to change our attitude about what we think of the evil people, pray for them, knowing that God takes care of them, and pray for their well-being as well. This is all ninth and 10th commandment stuff, that you don't look over the hedge like Nosy Parker and see your neighbor and get upset that God has given your neighbor the Mercedes that you wanted. Uh, and daily bread then includes just, it says and the like here at the end of this long litany of things, because it's not exhaustive. These are just examples of what daily bread can include. Uh, there's also a sacramental component. What's the first thing that comes to mind if you think about daily bread? The Lord's Supper, right? So the Lord gives you your daily bread in the body of Christ as well. Uh, what's good, remember this, okay? Uh, the body and the soul are not separate, they are together. What's good for the body is also good for the soul, and what's good for the soul is also good for the body. There is uh, a communication there, okay? Questions? All right, to Sunday school. I will say this to begin, it is an absolute genius maneuver to set up for potluck in such a way that we can still even have Bible class in here. And I'm not going to name names, but if you want to know who did it, you can look at the sign-up sheet and see, or you can just look to the back where the hand-waving is taking place. <laughs> 
I was trying to help you with humility, see? But this is really great. We don't have to move around. We can just stay here. Um, we are going to start something new today, as promised. And before we dive in, there is a handout if you didn't get it, too. Uh, before we dive into this, I just want to see if there's any questions before we begin. Yes. Uh, no, the Lamborghini was my, is mine. Oh, Mercedes. Yeah, the Mercedes was the example that was provided by another. So I just, you know, I run with what I'm given. Well, you must not have been praying long enough and hard enough. Yeah, either that or I just haven't believed hard enough. You know, if you believe just hard enough, God will for sure give you an abundance of wealth and comfort in your life. There's nothing really that's more offensive than that kind of preaching, what we call the prosperity gospel. That, well, you know, if you're suffering misfortune in your life, it's because you're not good enough and you don't believe hard enough. And maybe Jesus would love you a little more uh, if you actually took the time to believe him. It's just quite terrible. That's what you see with the, the televangelists. It's all about, well, if you want to have a big private jet and a giant Mercedes uh, like I do, and a $2,000 designer suit from Italy like I do, all you have to do is believe like I do. And you just want, oh, whoa, all I have to do is believe? Well, who would have thought of that? Boy. That's a whole lot of wisdom coming there. And then you look at the uh, confession when the man says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you think, oh, well, perhaps doubting and the unbelief that I experience on a daily basis is actually a natural thing that takes place with the warring of the regenerate will and the sinful flesh. And maybe... When Jesus says, you know, be my disciple, and when Jesus says, follow me, and when we talk about faith being, uh, in part, following Jesus where he goes, which means also to the cross through suffering, uh, maybe you can still say that God loves you even when you're suffering. It's also, here's, for a while there was a whole thing uh, that was going around the internet about first world problems. When somebody would complain about, boy, I can't believe that when I went to the Starbucks on my way to work driving my Benz this morning, look, you've put me on a whole kick. Yeah. Driving my Benz to work this morning at my six-figure job, and I stopped at Starbucks to get a large mocha, frothy frappuccino, whatever, and they gave me a small instead. Oh, my whole day is ruined. And you just say, well, that's a kind of a first world problem because there are a lot bigger things in life to worry about than that. But the whole prosperity gospel really sort of falls into that category that if you believe hard enough, God's going to bless you with a whole bunch of stuff. And then you look at some of these areas, especially right now where there's so much persecution. China, where churches are being demolished and the Christian church is being forced to go underground. Nigeria, where seminaries and churches are being burned and Christians are being massacred. India. Um, you look at some of these places and you think, well, I guess God doesn't love any of those people, does he? Because if God loved those people, they wouldn't be 
persecuted and they wouldn't be dying. But maybe, just maybe, God actually does love those people and following Jesus doesn't mean that your life is going to be one long, comfortable ride in a Benz until you die. Maybe, just maybe, like they hated and persecuted Jesus, they will also hate and persecute you. Maybe, just maybe, that baptismal seal that you have marks you as a child of God and therefore as an enemy of Satan. And maybe, just maybe, he doesn't really care for that and will keep coming after you. But what do I know? I'm not on TV. Maybe I should be, though. <laughs> uh, so, anyway. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, okay, so any, anyhow. Uh, questions, anything before we... Okay, so here's the plan. I want to take some time to talk about why it is we do some of the things we do during the season of Lent. Uh, Lent is often a season of uh, piety, is what we would call it. And we have acts of piety associated with Lent. So the idea of uh, putting away alleluias during the service, not singing opening or closing hymns and having there be silence, uh, increase of prayer and devotion, uh, the midweek services having in an increased number of uh, church services, an increased encouragement for private confession and absolution. Why do we put ashes on you? Why do we talk so much about death? All of this stuff. In, in some churches, they cover the, uh, the crucifixes and icons with black cloth, so you can't actually see them. They're all veiled. Uh, why do we um, strip the altar on Maundy Thursday? Why do we do any of this? So that's what I want to talk about and, and uh, give you some of the history behind that, what the traditions mean theologically speaking, how it ties in with the scriptural narrative and so forth. So that's the plan here. I have a question. Yes. There's no law about fasting, correct. It's a tradition during the season of Lent that, uh, that fasting becomes part of the discipline of the Christian during the 40 days. And that's just giving up something that you normally... Fa yeah, fasting doesn't mean only or, uh, or uh, specifically that you would just eat less or give up meals or give up meat. It, fasting takes... It's, uh, fasting is manifested in many forms. When I talk about the Great Lenten fast, or if you hear me say something about the fast is over, now we say Alleluia, that's an, in, that's, uh, an illustration of part of the Lenten fast, that the church ceases from her Alleluias. The Alleluias are put in a box and put up on a shelf for 40 days, and then we take them out later. But we're fasting from that. We're fasting from some of the uh, deeper joys. And part of the reason for that is that well, when Easter comes, how much greater is the Alleluia when you've not been able to say it for 40 days? Uh, which is why you almost get sick of saying Alleluia after the first Sunday in Easter, because Easter Sunday you get there and everything is Alleluia this and Alleluia that and Alleluia here and Alleluia there and Alleluia to all of you and Alleluia to me. And it's just, 
Alleluia is everywhere because the fast has increased the fervent desire of the church to say that. When it comes to the individual Christian, uh, fasting takes place in giving up things for Lent. Part of, that's part of the Lenten fast or the Lenten sacrifice. Re- withholding from yourselves things that ordinarily you wouldn't. Um, and in, in its most extreme form, and I don't mean extreme in a negative sense, it's just if the height of fasting during Lent would be giving up meals or eating less at meals to deny the flesh, to crucify the flesh during the 40 days. Well, Samantha helped with the leadership conference over at the monastery at Conception. Oh, sure, uh-huh. And she said the monks, all the monks, had to give up snacks for the month. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in a monastery, there's a very corporate, it's a very corporate setting. In the monastery, you don't exist as individuals, you exist as the, as the corporate body there. The whole. Right, so what discipline the brotherhood takes on, the entire brotherhood takes on. The church, the, the church does that to an extent too, though. Um, there, there is an individual aspect or an individualistic aspect to some of the Lenten piety traditions. Uh, but at the same time, this is a corporate body of Christ. And that in a certain sense, the corporate body is united. Hey, th- and, and here's one uniting factor right now. Are you going to be a part of the season of Lent? And are you all going to give up saying hallelujahs when you come to church? Oh, you are. So there's a corporate nature to that, uh, as well as the individual Christian liberty. Now, the setting of a monastery versus the setting of a congregation is also slightly different. Uh, slightly different. Um, I, there's not um, rigi- religiously enforced law on you, and the brothers know what they're getting into when they go into a monastery like that. Um, So they know that they're giving up a lot of their own wants and desires in order to um, do that. There's nothing wrong with fasting, and I I think I wrote this in the article, if you can't fast for medical reasons, then don't try to do it. That's not piety, that's just stupidity. Uh, Trying to do more than you are able is not pious. My, it was one year that my grandmother gave up coffee. She said it was the hardest lunch she's ever gone through. <laughs> <laughs> she, she couldn't wait till Easter morning. Yeah, I can feel for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian, going back, Sebastian Bach
the coming of Easter <coughs> through man. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, is that a change that's come about in the Missouri Senate as we move forward in our years, or does anybody else, can they remember us giving up anything? Uh, I wasn't around during the heyday of the TLH eras. And I didn't grow up in a TLH congregation, so I don't know how congregations did that. But what I can tell you is it's, it, it may be a change in the Missouri Synod, or it may not be, uh, but it for sure is not a change in the church. Uh, that Lent as a season of piety and penitence, as with Advent too, there are certain things that are omitted historically and traditionally for the sake of that season. Uh, so if for a time they weren't observed, and now that's started being observed again, then that's a small change in the synod perhaps, if it wasn't something that was done before. But often small changes like that end up being for the better as we get around back to what the church historically does. Um, the, the other thing too is, um, so you don't, there's no gloria, the gloria is omitted, and the uh, alleluias are omitted. But also, this is an interesting thing, um, weddings, are considered inappropriate during the season of Lent because the season of Lent is a somber season of penitence and to intersperse that with something as joyous as a wedding is improper for the season. So that's something that's in the rubrics as well. If you go and look at like the big altar book, the missal that sits up there on the altar, uh, there's all kinds of things in there about what, what you should and should not do during Lent. It, it's never about what you can and cannot do, but it is a question of what you should and should not do. What's, what's okay to do, but what's better to do. And uh, so if you are somebody who wants your color to be purple at your wedding, uh, I'm sorry, because the pyramids can never be purple at your wedding. Bruce. What couple came to you and said they wanted to get married like say uh, April first or whatever. Uh huh. So would you decline perform that ceremony or inform them about uh, respect of and this and that? Yeah, I would counsel them towards pushing it to I mean any day after Easter basically. Heck I'd do a wedding on Easter Sunday if you really wanted me to. Just not during the season of Lent. I think most people would be agreeable to that if you sit down and explain why we would prefer no weddings during Lent. And I think most people just are unaware that that's a, a policy, polity, tradition of the church. Um, if it was something that was insisted upon, I would politely decline doing the wedding then because I, I, that's not something that I do during Lent. Rhonda. Uh, when Jim and I got married, <coughs> excuse me, April 24th, Pastor Jenkins said if we would have gotten married the Sunday before, or the, what was the weekend, whatever, that the altar would have been black because it was that good 
black pyramids would be the absolute worst for a well, wedding. We did. We did. <laughs> <laughs> I can see. So Lent, just generally speaking, is not a good time for a wedding. It because and be, here's why. I mean, think about what Lent is. Lent is a season of penitence. Look at all the readings of Lent. Jesus is thrown into the wilderness and fed to wild beasts. Jesus is tempted. Jesus is fasting for 40 days. Jesus goes to the temple. Jesus dies. That's Lent. We cut out the music. We cut out all the happy hallelujahs. Now think about what it says. If that's what Lent is, and we are there, we come to church, we pray in silence, we reflect upon who we are, because you can't reflect upon what Christ has done if you don't reflect also upon who you are. And then in the middle of all of that, we say, hey, all right, we're going to have a wedding, we're going to dance, we're going to party, we're going to say a whole bunch of happy things, we're going to change the pyramids to white and have it be bright and nice and lovely. It just doesn't, you know, it sort of just doesn't fit with the whole tone. And the thing about the church year is that it's pervasive. So that you, yeah, you're going to leave church today, after the potluck, hopefully. Um, but you'll leave church today, and you'll go home. And tomorrow will be a brand new day. It's not a Sunday. You won't be coming to church for divine service. But it's still a part of the church year. So you're still in the season of sexagesima tomorrow when you wake up. And you'll be in sexagesima until next week when it's septuagesima. And you'll be in septuagesima. You'll be in the gesima tide until the beginning of Lent. So the church year is pervasive. So no, no matter what day you're on, if you're in Lent, it's still Lent. <clears throat> even if you're not right here in church. The church year is Pervasive. That's why if I start a meeting, I begin it with the collect from the previous Sunday, typically. If I begin class, it's with the collect from the previous Sunday, typically. Why? Uh, because we're living in the church year, and that this is the part of the church year we end, so we continue praying the prayer for this part of the church year. Does that make sense? That it's all pervade. I mean, it's like the calendar year. You don't wake up tomorrow and say that it isn't February anymore because you're not, I don't know, because it's not Valentine's Day. It's still February. <clears throat> the, the calendar is pervasive. Well, the church calendar is the same way. The church year is the same way. It's pervasive. It, and it continues every year again and again and again with this pervasive nature, with the seasons all falling in. Um, does that make sense? Okay. So, I mean, yeah, I would counsel a couple against that. And then if they said, no, we absolutely are going to have a wedding and, and uh, we're doing it one way or another, then I would say, well, then I will politely not conduct your wedding. <clears throat> but I don't think that it would ever get that bad. Of course, you never know. You never know. But I, I highly doubt that it would ever get to that point. Uh, other questions here? Okay. We talk a lot about piety, and I've said the word piety or the word pious quite a bit already. So to start the whole talk off uh, about Lent, uh, and Lent is a season of piety and penitence and what all that means, pious acts, what we do, why we do it, 
I want to take a little bit of time to talk about a black mark on Lutheranism's record, and that is pietism. It's something that we cannot escape, <clears throat> no matter how hard we try. It is there, and it is around us, and is a part of our history. And uh, when I talk about the season of piety, I have to distinguish that from any form of pietism, from pietistic attitudes. Uh, so I want you to understand that there is a difference, generally speaking, generally speaking, between T's and isms. Of course, this example being piety versus pietism. Um, with a T, you're generally getting um, a belief. You're, you're getting teachings. And they can be of an individual or it can be a collective. But it's this assembled, this assembled teaching and understanding with a T. Piety. There's teachings, there's understanding, and then there's acts associated with that as well. Where you run into trouble is when it sacrifices T for ism. Piety being sacrificed and turned into, warped into, pietism. Pietism, or any kind of ism, uh, turns into uh, adherence, religious adherence, or a, a movement based upon whatever teachings are associated with the prefix of that. So piety becomes pietism, collected teachings, a movement, uh, a force behind uh, the movement that is about piety. Uh, one of the more silly examples of this is Lutheranism. Uh, there is actually uh, a distinction between the Lutheran faith and Lutheranism. Often isms can become caric uh, caricatures or farces of what they really were supposed to be. Uh, so I, th there is a professor, so, and, and he says this sort of infamously too at the seminary, who says, my one goal in life is to destroy Lutheranism. And he gets a whole lot of flack because especially from first-year seminarians, because here's the thing about seminarians, they don't really know anything, but their problem is they think they know everything, and especially first-year seminarians. There was one professor that said he thought all first-year seminarians should take a vow of silence for one year. <laughs> and uh, I can kind of get on board with that, but... Uh, People are scandalized by that kind of saying. You want to destroy Lutheranism? Don't you like being a Lutheran? And he says, oh, I love being a Lutheran. I just hate Lutheranism. The, the farce that often Lutheran, the Lutheran faith becomes. Adherence to things that the Lutheran faith never did. Champions of things that the Lutheran faith never actually believes. Uh, and then persistent teaching that leads people to believe that this is what the Lutheran faith really is when if you take a step back you go, no, actually, this is not exactly, it's sort of parallel but not exactly the same. That's one of the more silly examples, but uh, piety versus pietism, pietism is not a good thing. So just a little bit of history, 
Why I say this is the Lutheran's black mark is because pietism was a movement that came from the Lutheran church in Germany in the, I wanna say, at its earliest, the late 17th century, um, and then into the 18th, 19th, and even 20th century. Things that are similar to pietism, so just you get an image of this in your head, the Puritan movement, Puritanism came from England and pietism came from Germany. <clears throat> they are essentially the same thing. Uh, pietism and Puritanism together gave birth to some of the evangelical, almost actually almost entirely evangelicalism, um, but specific denominations like the Methodists came from Methodism in England, which was an offshoot of Puritanism and Pietism. Um, the Puritans, obviously, that's in their name, and other groups like that on the more evangelical side that come from this. Now, um, yeah, the Lutherans are kind of responsible for that. There are some notable theologians. The guy who was in charge of it was a guy named Spainer, Philip Jakob Spener. And he wasn't a bad guy. The way that this all started was that he looked at Christians and he said, you know, you Lutherans, you talk a lot of talk, but you're not great Christians. You sit down and you talk all about the catechism and your book of Concord, and, uh, and then you go out drinking on Saturday night, and then go to church on Sunday and say, everything's okay, I don't need to live like a Christian because, well, grace abounds. I'm saved by grace, not by works. And you're not very good Christians. Maybe, can we just be better Christians? Maybe can we actually live like Christians? And people said, hey, wow, what a novel idea. That's actually really good. And then it took off. And it became something that it was not intended to be. Sort of a semi-reform of Christian life and living and seeking after holiness and being an actual Christian as opposed to wearing the name Christian and continuing to do everything that you want to do anyway. But it took off in a bad way. Um, most notably, it took off in the sense that then there were mandated laws where the church said things like, you're not allowed to dance you're not allowed to play cards because if you do that, all of that is sinful living and Christians don't behave that way. If you want to be a Christian, you have to behave this way. You have to follow all of these rules and you have to follow them exactly perfectly or else God is going to be so angry with you. Now, what does that sound a little bit like? What does it sound like from the Bible? New Testament in particular. <clears throat> Yeah, sounds a little bit like the Pharisees, who weren't necessarily all bad folks, just a little misguided. Strict adherence to the law, according to the letter, making up a whole bunch of laws then to try and force people to stay in line, which only made things more difficult, and which only ensured that they broke the laws all the more fervently, even unintentionally so. Here's a fun thing. I've known a number of very, very Orthodox Jewish people in my life. And I'm consistently amazed by them. Because they'll tell you all about the laws that they have. 
They'll tell you all about what they are and are not allowed to do. Specifically, and more commonly, they'll tell you about what they're not allowed to do and why. But then they'll tell you all of the little workarounds and loopholes that they've discovered so they can continue doing the things they want to do without breaking the law. And I'm consistently amazed by this because I think, why on earth do you care about the laws if your time and energy is spent solely figuring out ways to skirt the laws? <laughs> then what good are the laws even doing you? You're still doing everything you're not supposed to do. You just found a loophole that allows you to do it. And then what happens? Well, then they go back and say, well, people are finding a lot of loopholes here. I guess we better change the law. So we're going to make a whole bunch of other laws to, you know, like the little boy who plugs the dam with his finger. We're going to go in and we're going to plug up all these little holes uh, with new laws and then they're going to find new loopholes and then we've got to go back and we keep fixing, keep making laws and laws and laws and laws and laws and uh, force them to live a certain way. But it, it doesn't end up doesn't end up working really well. If you know a little bit about the history of Lutheranism in America, you'll know that American Lutheranism has suffered significantly and struggled significantly with pietism as a movement. Part of that was due to the fact that when the Lutherans first came to America, they didn't really have many books, they didn't really take much with them, they didn't have seminaries, they didn't have enough pastors, so communities would have to wait for you know, a month while somebody, one pastor, went around and visited all the churches. And in the meantime, without your pastor around, well, you tend to be led astray by whatever is around you. And at that time, some of the more evangelical things were taking off, and often the Lutherans would be swayed by that. And uh, in, the, in the 1800s, you can look at the comparison between a lot of the Methodism, Methodist, uh, me excuse me, Methodism was pretty big around that time. And you can compare Lutherans and Methodists, and you see that they're very similar, and that all these really big-time, big-name pastors from Germany that came to America, people like Walther, uh, are going, stop, what are you doing? This is, you came from Germany. Don't you know what we were supposed to be? Look what you're doing. Stop this. Uh, so there was a very, a very large struggle with that. And even into the late 1800s, into the early 1900s, things like playing cards and dancing were considered sins in the Lutheran church. Um, I don't know exactly when that changed, but I know that for a while that was the case. Also, you weren't allowed to own insurance. Having insurance was a sin in the Lutheran church because if you had insurance, it meant that you weren't trusting in God to take care of you and you were seeking earthly means to take care of you, uh, so you shouldn't do that. So these are all things that the Lutheran church has struggled with and it's, you know, it's not just the Lutheran church. Um, many bodies have struggled with this idea. Um, think, but things like mandated holiness living which is something you hear in certain evangelical circles, the idea of holiness living. I'm not, a, I, I'm not against it. In fact, I encourage you to live a holy life. I encourage you to seek the holy things of God, touch holy things, run away from evil things, flee from sin. Uh, but I'm not going to give you 
a little three by five card with a list of things that you're not allowed to do. So they go, well, hmm, well, can't do that because the church will be angry, the God will be angry with me. Uh, that's not the way this works. So I just have some comparisons here to give you an idea of pi what piety looks like versus what pietism looks like. Piety, first of all, is a natural thing. When you look at scripture, you see acts of piety all the time. Moses falling on his knees before uh, the theophany of God in the burning bush. Uh, theophany is an appearance of God. So him falling on his face before the Lord, is it a mandated thing? Does the Lord sit there with a stopwatch going, how long is it going to take for him to get on his knees? Every second it takes him, I'm going to rip him a new one. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. The Lord appears, he speaks to Moses, and the natural response of faith is to know itself, you know, oh my goodness, I am a sinner and you are God. I cannot be here, I cannot look at you, I shouldn't be talking to you. There is an act of reverence, which is an act of piety, right there before the Lord. But it's a natural thing, it's not a mandated thing. Um, so it's devotion, it's, it's natural devotion, it's natural reverence, or the, what we would say the fear of God. The fear of God should be a natural thing in faith. Um, the, the sense that you look at God and you know him for who he is and you know who, you for who you are. Um, like when we go up uh, into the chancel, if you, if you enter the chancel or if you cross or approach the face of the altar, you reverence, it's an act of piety, it's not mandated. I explain it to the kids like this, you know, the, the church, the sanctuary is Jesus' house, but the chancel is sort of like Jesus' bedroom, because that's really the place that Jesus lives, and you're not going to go into Jesus' house without saying hello and goodbye. It's just not polite. So when you, when you go up into Jesus, you just make sure to say hello, and before you leave, you just kind of say goodbye. It's polite, it's nice, it's respectful. It's the fear of God, is what it is. So it's, it's all uh, a natural thing, is, is the point here, that it's, it's something that flows forth from faith. If you have faith that God is who he says he is, and if you have the faith that understands yourself to be who you are, then when you're in the presence of God, you behave a little bit differently. Sort of like how if the President of the United States came to town, and you uh, received an invitation to have a private audience with him, to sit down and shake his hand and speak to him, you wouldn't show up in torn off shorts, flip-flops, uh, and hair that looked like you just rolled out of bed, and the t-shirt you wore yesterday, and say, oh, hey, what's up? You just wouldn't behave like that. Why? Well, it just isn't not quite right. There's a certain amount of respect that goes along with the office that he holds. Uh, there's a really funny story which serves my point here. Um, you know the baseball player Yogi Berra? He's famous for saying things that sound dumb, but that makes sense if you think about them. <laughs> well, there's a great story. Excuse me. Yeah. The road yeah, nobody eats at that restaurant anymore. It's too crowded. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, there was a newspaper reporter who talked to him because he found out that Yogi Berra had had an audience with the Pope. And he said, well, Yogi, you got to see the Pope. And he said, yeah, yeah, I don't know how that happened. I, so I, they ushered me in, and he was sitting in his chair, and I got to see him, and, and I guess he knew me. And the reporter said, well, well how, how do you know that? And he said, well, because he said, hello, Yogi, when I walked in. And the reporter said, 
well, how did you respond when he said that? And he said, well, I don't know. I said, hi, Pope. (laughs) (laughs) And you laugh because, you know, it's not really the proper way that you would go into it. Oh, hey, Pope. That's not really, but, you know, think what you will about the Pope, but you know that there is a certain height of office and a certain respect, even if you even if you don't like him, there's a certain respect that goes along with that. So that's really uh, what faith does in the presence of God. It's pi- it, that's piety. Now here's the, the, the other side of that is pietism. When, the, when those acts that ought to be natural, when those acts which are the outpouring of faith become mandated. When you have somebody that's looking down your shoulder saying, you've got to do this, 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 and if you don't do this, then you aren't holy, and God's angry with you, and he doesn't love you. Um, that's, that's pietism. Then it's not the natural outpouring of faith, it's the dictated acts of some kind of rigidly enforced church law which is not the way that the Christian is supposed to live. Another example, uh, piety is following Jesus as Jesus wishes to be followed. Well, I say that kind of stuff all the time. Follow Jesus the way that Jesus wishes to be followed. Live as a faithful disciple of Jesus. Do what Jesus does. Say what Jesus says. When Jesus tells you to do something, say, Amen, I'm on it, I'll do it. Love and obedience aren't that different when it comes to Jesus. They're, in in fact, exactly the same. The uh, converse of that is the transformation of the gospel into uh, some kind of a guilt-ridden practice. And if you look at sermons, that's a good place to identify some of this stuff. So... More or less, the summary of a Lutheran sermon is what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. But, but what does that mean? I mean, summarize that. Tell me what it looks like. When you hear a Lutheran sermon, what does it say to you? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, you know, here's some shorthand. You're sick, and you can't get better by yourself. But Jesus is going to be your doctor. He's going to take care of you. He's going to feed you your medicine. And he's going to take you to all the places that are going to be good for you. Okay, there you go. Now, above all, that sounds like I don't want to ask law or gospel, but can can you give me a word? What does that sort of a message sound like? A word of, Jesus is going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. Yeah, he knows. He knows you're sick. He knows you can't take care of yourself. But he loves you. He's going to give you medicine. Jesus will do it all. It's a message of grace. Another example is this. You're all a bunch of sinners, and you're bad. And Jesus has come, 
And he's done a lot for you. Jesus died for you. Are you still living like a sinner? Think about all that Jesus went through for you. And how are you repaying him? Now, do you see what the difference is between that? Those two examples? The focus of the first example is on who? Yeah. It's on Jesus. But the, the focus of the second example, what are you doing? Jesus died for you. What's your deal, man? How, this is how you're repaying Jesus. Often you even hear the language of repayment. What are you, what are you giving back to Jesus? Be better. Well, who's, then who's the subject? Right. It's, it's an opposite thing. Yes? It almost sounds like back to what you did in the way and Darrell talking about the difference between law and gospel and when it starts pointing out you need to do this, you need to do that, you should have done this, you mm-hmm. didn't do that, that's the law. Yes. And that's why I say it's turning the gospel into law is one of the things that pietism and the pietism movement has done. It turns the gospel into law. Jesus has died for you. He's coming to give you a gift. Jesus has died for you. What are you going to do to show him that you were worth dying for? Well, the whole... You weren't worth dying for. That's the point. Here is the only prerequisite... For the blood of Christ. Here is the only prerequisite for the salvation of Christ. That you are dead. Do you think you can handle that on your own? I'm pretty sure you can. Can you, can you be dead to trespasses and sin? Dead to your works? Dead to your flesh? Can you be cold, dead on a slab? Yeah. In fact, that's really the only thing you can do. So that's your only prerequisite. Jesus comes to raise the dead. He comes to bring life to the dead, which means that all you have to be to receive life is you have to be dead. You don't have to be dead and then quick jump up and make sure that your hair is combed and ready for Jesus when he comes. You just have to be dead. You gotta die to live and live. Yeah, right. If you die before you die, you don't die when you die. I love that. It's like a tongue twister. You can sound really smart, too, when you talk to your friends about, well, what do the Lutherans believe? Well, Lutherans believe if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, oh. <laughs> Somebody, I, yes, Does, what category does a Christian scientist work in the thing of, are they taking God, or are they hoping God does something? I'm going to level with you. I know next to nothing about Christian scientism. So I don't know that I can even answer the question because I don't even know what it is that they teach. That's something I've never looked into and never studied. But I can look into it and I can give you an answer this week if you'd like. (laughs) I just know whenever they have a child or somebody in the hospital and they don't let the doctors touch them or they believe that God will heal them. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I can talk to you about that. Yeah, that's what I see. All right. 
The, the Lord works through means, true or false? True. True. Uh, if you don't believe that the Lord works through means, I would encourage you to reassess your position uh, because if the Lord doesn't work through means, this guy who stands in front of you and helps you out with stuff doesn't matter at all. And even more so, the water in that font doesn't matter at all. And that bread and shot of wine doesn't matter at all. So the Lord works through means, and that's okay because he's chosen to work through means. He wants to do that. Um, means doesn't only mean the water in the font or the bread and the wine. There are other means. One means can also be seen in the medical community. How does the Lord enact healing? Well, right, okay. So, essentially, the Lord continues to work healing through the means that he has provided, through the hands at the doctor's office or in the hospital that care for his people. Now, does that mean that the Lord will not perform miraculous healings? No, it can happen. It could happen. I've seen it happen. Uh, I've seen it happen with my own two eyes. And I've seen doctors that can't explain why somebody got better when they thought for sure somebody wasn't going to get better. It doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't continue to heal, but the Lord does work through means, and the Lord has provided... Um, the Lord has provided daily bread. One thing we could maybe add to Luther's list of what's included in daily bread is uh, medicine, the support and needs of the body, medicine and healthcare professionals who are given to take care of his people. So to, to reject any of that and to say that the only way that the Lord will ever heal is through some kind of miraculous lightning bolt that strikes the person and gets them ready to go is the same kind of attitude that says, I'm going to pray for healing, I'm praying for healing, I'm praying for healing, I'm praying for healing, and when the doctor comes in to say, we found a cure to the disease, you go, no, 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 I'm praying for healing, the Lord will take care of it. And it's like, <clears throat> maybe that was the answer to your prayer. Yeah. I was ill a few years ago, and many people were kept praying for me. Mm -hmm. I knew that because I felt something totally different than I ever felt before when I knew that wasn't happening. It's a unique feeling that occurs. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Look at how look at how powerful prayer is. You know, I gave you examples um, of this before. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. I am going to blast these places off the face of the earth. No, 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 please don't do that. I'll intercede for them, I'll pray for them. For 50 people, would you leave it? That's my prayer, that's your prayer, that's my prayer. Okay, I will hear your prayer. That's also why you don't say, God damn it, or God damn you. Because the Lord hears your prayers, and the Lord just might. 
don't pray for things that you don't actually want to happen. Because you have a unique power in prayer. Uh, it's, it's the power of the Father. When the child asks the Father for things, and the Father relents. And now, uh, this is a bad example, but it's one that I think is funny. There's an episode of The Simpsons, I think, where they're driving, or they're, they're talking to the dad and going, can we have a pool, dad? No. Can we have a pool, dad? No. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. And finally they say, good dad, can we have a pool? And he goes, oh, okay, sure. Now, that's kind of the power that children have over their parents. You would interact with your children in a way that is different than how you would interact with your children's friends when they come over. Your kids can talk to you in a way that other people can't talk to you. There's a distinct privilege and there's a distinct power in being a child that you have over your parents because you know that your parents want to take care of you and will do things for you that other people wouldn't do for you. The primary thing that, that your parents do for you, I'm looking at all you young people here, the primary thing your parents do for you that nobody else would do for you is put up with you. So keep that in mind. <laughs> and how do I know that? Because I was really difficult to put up with. <laughs> and I've heard about it. Uh, okay, but anyway, uh, the Lord hears prayers. And the Lord will always answer prayers. And when you pray, you have a power to be able to sway God. That's a really big deal. Prayer is a really big deal. People should pray more often. If people knew what prayer was and what prayer could do, both for you and for your neighbor, boy, oh boy, we ought to be praying a whole lot more than we are. Um, so I'm just going to close with this. On this whole, well, what is this piety versus pietism looks like? What does it look like when something is natural versus when something is, um, Im uh, when something is imposed and mandated? What does it look like when something is the gospel versus when something that is gospel has been turned into something that's law? I can sum it up for you in just a couple quotes. The first one is this. What has Jesus done? It, you don't even have to answer the question. It's just the question. What has Jesus done? That's the question. Then you know it's all about Jesus, and you know that everything that follows is what Jesus has done for you. And it's always about Jesus. You're always looking at what Jesus does. Jesus is always the subject. If you ever find yourself as the subject, you are in dangerous waters. The converse to that is, what would Jesus do? What has Jesus done versus what would Jesus do? I remember, maybe, maybe you remember this too, back in the 90s when that WWJD was all the rage and everybody had those bracelets about, well, what would Jesus do? And you'd get into a fork in your road in life and, well, what would Jesus do? Well, the point isn't what would Jesus do in every single moral conundrum. Well, how would Jesus vote? Jesus would be a gun-toting Republican. No, Jesus would be a, a, a Democrat who's going to make sure everybody gets what they want. Jesus is going to be a Libertarian because he hated everybody. Okay? Uh, no, you're, if that's how you're going to look at things, you're completely missing the point. 
You're missing the point. It's not about what would Jesus do. It's not about the hypothetical about, well, let's, let's look at the things that Jesus did do and try and see if we can finagle those into something that matches today. Look at what Jesus has done. And when you look at what has been accomplished in Christ and the things that he has done, you already find everything that you need. And you realize it's not about you. Get over yourselves. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus has done. So to say, well, what would Jesus do is to say, well, let's apply Jesus' logic to me so that I can make sure that I'm doing the same things that Jesus would want me to do if Jesus were here looking over my shoulder. Now you see, who's the subject again? It's me. I'm going to make sure I do the things that Jesus did. What would Jesus do here? Well, it's about what Jesus has done and what Jesus works or has worked in you. Um, the other question is, what does Jesus currently do for you versus what will you do for Jesus? Uh, what is Jesus doing for you now? Wow, well, he's supporting me, he's sustaining me, he's giving daily bread to me, he's giving me his body and blood, he's forgiving my sins, he's comforting me, he's picking me up and dusting me off when I fall down, he's leading me on the way, he's showing all these great things that Jesus is doing for me. He's giving me faith, he's strengthening that faith, he's feeding that faith, and then with that faith, you have the power to turn around and say, thank you, Lord, amen. I'll have some more of that, please. And you know what? I love it so much, I'm going to share it. That you have the power to do that in the faith that's been granted to you. But to turn around and say, well, now, now you have faith. As if faith is a commodity. Like you can open a box and say, ah, oh, I got my faith right here. I'm going to make sure I carry this faith with me everywhere. I knew, I knew somebody in high school once that got a tattoo. She got a lower back tattoo, which was kind of a mistake to begin with. But the lower back tattoo just said faith. And she said, I got a tattoo that said faith because now I know I'll never lose my faith. <laughs> it's just one of those things where you say, honey, I don't think you understand what faith is. If, if you think that the tattoo of faith means you'll never lose your faith and that now you have everything that Jesus has promised you because you had somebody ink your lower back, <clears throat> You need to come to church and hear a couple more sermons. That's not what it's about. It's not about what you're going to do for Jesus. You don't have a moral obligation to make sure, well, Jesus has saved me, so I've got to make sure that I serve him really, really well. Because, you know, I've got to make sure that he really, he gets his money's worth out of the redemption price for me. You just have to acknowledge this, that um, he's never going to get the redemption price out of you. You weren't worth it to begin with, and you, you, uh, the redemption price, the value of that just kind of diminishes over time. <laughs> but in God's eyes, it only goes up. You're valuable to God. He does it because he cares about you, not because he thinks he's going to get anything out of you. Really, it's a poor investment. God's kind of reckless with his spending. He's the, he's the old woman who throws a $5 million block party and has to take out a personal loan to pay for a party because she found a penny under her couch. Now, come on, who's going to do that? Well, I found a penny in the parking lot. I found a penny in the couch. Come, we'll spend $5 million and you can celebrate with me. We'll get my pennies worth out of this party. <laughs> you 
just, that's the way he is, okay? So it isn't about you, it's not about the, um, it's not about what you have to do for Jesus, what you're mandated to do for Jesus, it's about following Jesus where he is, which is just the natural thing of faith. I love Jesus. Look at what he's done for me. I, I, I'm going to make sure I keep following him. I'm going to go to the places that he says are good for me. I'm, I'm going to stay away from the places that he says are bad for me. It's like the Lion King when he says, never go to this dark area. That's a bad place for you. It's not to be legalistic or cruel. It's just to say, that's bad for you. Don't do it. It's dumb. Sin is dumb. That's what Jesus says. Hey, listen, sin is stupid. Don't do it. Sin is bad for you. Don't go there. Just go here instead. This is really good for you. This is the smart call. Follow me. Okay? So we'll continue with this, and then we've got some scriptural examples to look at and pick apart with a fine-tooth comb. Questions before we leave? Okay. See you at the altar.